Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together entrepreneurs, founders, business leaders, and experts to talk about their journeys and explore the link between personal and business success. I'm your host, Juan Munson, founder of Evolve, a coaching, training, and development company focused on enabling business and personal success and creating a community of like-minded individuals. Whether that be through our peer groups, one-to-one coaching, our training and development programs for you and your teams, or through our content and events, our mission is to get the best out of each individual and inspire them to be better both in life and in business. If you want to learn more about Evolve, including our beautiful co-working space in Ashley Cross in Paul, then please go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find great content, insights, details of all of our services, and also information on our forthcoming events. For now, though, let's get on with the show. This week, we hear from someone who has risen from the depths of despair to turn his life around and become an extraordinary success story. After more than 20 years of drug addiction, which included three years on the street, three years in prison, and four years in rehab, Steve Wyatt found a talent for furniture restoration and used it to restore his own life. He now owns a furniture restoration space and shop called Restored Retro and collaborates with repair shop star as well as his friend and mentor Jay Blades by stocking Jay & Co's furniture and his own shop in Paul. It is an incredible journey that is both inspirational and at times heartbreaking. It's definitely one of the most emotionally intense podcasts that I've recorded and it was a true privilege to see the openness and vulnerability from Steve as he told his story without fear. Please enjoy this very special conversation with a truly resilient and courageous individual. Hi Steve, welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thank you. It's brilliant to be sat here in restored retro and the setting and it is perfect uh, for recording this conversation and it is called the Evolve to Succeed podcast and out of all of the guests that we've had on the podcast, I think your story as our listeners will hear is one of you evolving and changing and developing to be where you are today. So I suppose for our listeners, um, talk us through your story, 22 years of addiction to, to where you find yourself now, Steve. Yeah. Um, as a child, really, um, you know, I was adopted um, when I was six months old. My parents, Ron and Pat, my adopted parents, took me in. I had two older brothers. Um, they were seven years older. And, you know, we we had a great home, you know, great family. Mm. You know, we were, we were all... My brothers were adopted seven years before me. They were twins. Okay. And were you one family unit? Of yes. Three of you yeah. worked together. Yeah. yeah. My mum and dad, Ron and Pat, and my brothers, Mike yeah. and Rob. So there was five of us. And, you know, as a kid, I always remember feeling different. My mum and dad told me I was adopted probably when I was about seven or eight years old. Okay. And I remember feeling really angry and ashamed of who I was. And I started, I, I can't remember if I started having problems at school that time or, or before, but <clears throat> as a child, I was, I always wanted, um, always nagging for something and I wanted more and more and my mum and dad would give in to me and then I'd get what I wanted, then I'd be on to something else. Um, at school, I kind of got bullied um, and the kids used to taunt me. They used to kind of scream Wyatt the riot to get a reaction and right. then I'd end up fighting about five of them. And Then the riot would come. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was put in a classroom on my own. Okay. Um, and I just, as a kid, I found peace really in riding off on my bike on my own, okay. you know, and I, I, I would, as I said, I felt ashamed. I felt a bit embarrassed of who I was. And if it was spoken about, I'd get really upset and everyone else, my brothers kind of seemed fine with it. Um, they were seven years older. So mm. me being seven years younger at times, I was probably a bit of a pain and they didn't want me hanging around yeah. Um, but like c- kind of from an early age, I found excitement in smashing things up or setting something on fire. Um, it just kind of anything that took me out of myself, you know, I was, I was quite naughty. I was quite a handful. 
um, where the kids used to taunt me. They, you know, I'd have a birthday party and invite them. And when they had their parties, I never used to get invited. So okay. it was, that's how it was as a kid. I was, you know, my cousin said to me about a year ago that you had lots of energy when you were a kid. You know, I was just a kid and yeah, I, you know, my mum and dad, they, they gave us everything. We went on holidays, you know, my nan, my granddad, cousins, you know, it was a perfect kind of, you know, the mm. love was there. Um, then my dad moved uh, jobs. He went up to Solihull. We moved up there when I was 12. So we moved from Bristol, well, it was a place called Clevedon in between Bristol and Western Supermare. Uh, so we moved from that little right. town to the Midlands, uh, 12 miles out of Birmingham. Um, I'd done my first year in comprehensive in Clevedon, so I went into the second year. So I would have been 12, nearly probably 13. Uh, you know, things were all right for a couple of years. And then we lived on a big estate uh, in Solihull and I kind of started hanging around with these lads. And, you know, drugs were introduced. Um probably about the age of 14, 15. Wow, a really early stage. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, started smoking, glue sniffing. Um, I actually got pulled into the classroom by a teacher and questioned. Somebody had told the the teachers at school that I'd, I'd been glue sniffing and I denied it. I was probably probably about 15 at the time, 14, 15. Um, and, and then we started smoking cannabis, taking acid. Uh, <laughs> Do you know, uh, it, 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 once again, it took me out myself. Yeah. But as soon as I started using, um, I did it to excess. Um, I'd actually had my first drink when I was about eight or nine years old <clears throat> in Mallorca. I got absolutely paralytic in Ibiza. <clears throat> so my behavior around substances from the, from the go it was were, always this sort of you always had this kind of addictive personality absolutely type. yeah i did things to the extreme it was never one mm. you know you people would have one drink it would be like five or six you know and I, I just there was no off button for me yeah um i left school with no qualifications and went to food college uh i, I was there for a year got found out that was smoking cannabis and I was challenged about it um, and I left. Um, at this time at 16 and a half probably, I got introduced to the rave scene in Birmingham. So it was in the 90s, we're talking about 93, 94. Yeah. Um, my friend's sister's boyfriend was older, he was in his 30s, you know, he had the flash Mercedes with the LSD 500 um registration plate and he used to take us up so we went <clears throat> the first time we went to a rave in birmingham it was in a warehouse it was an illegal uh event and that's where i took my first ecstasy tablet right. it was the bright lights the music the glamour and you know from if i think back now that opened up a whole different world to me um and is that because you had this sense that you had found a belonging or somewhere you fitted I felt, in life? I or? felt like I, 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 I fitted in. Yeah. Where all those years where I felt that I didn't fit in, mm. you know, I, I just felt, wow, this is it, you know. And um, from that point, it, it got really out of hand quite quickly. Um, you know, telling lies, stealing. I stole from my parents. Um, to fund, you know, this this party lifestyle. I was working in a fishmonger's. Mum and dad said, oh, you've got to go and get a job after I left college. Um, and we were in the pub every night. The the boss, my boss of the fishmongers, he, he was probably an alcoholic. He was in the pub every night. All of his mates were in the pub. And there was like a gang of them of about 10. So I was attracted to that. <laughs> like, you know, and like the they, they were just buying drinks. So like you go to the pub after work, they, they'd buy the drinks and then, you know, and then his mates were there and, and I was attracted to that. And there were a few kind of yeah. people that were doing things that they shouldn't have been doing. And, and like I was attracted to that and I became friends with them. And then... You know, I I probably started drinking alcoholically 
um, at this point as well as okay. partying on the weekends um, in the pub every night, then literally finish work on a Saturday, go to the pub, stay into in, the pub uh, at nine o'clock at night. Then I'd go home, get changed, go to Birmingham to a rave and we'd party all night until six in the morning, sometimes like maybe two days. And the guys that I was hanging around with that I first got introduced to the to the drugs, you know, I pushed them away really quickly. I think, you know, I scared people, um, you know, my behavior. Um, you know, I was doing it to extreme. Mm. I really was just fully pushing the boundaries. My mum and dad, they totally... You know, I was hiding what I was doing and I, I think they knew. Um, so they sent me to live with my brother in Cardiff. I was, okay. I was about 17. To so take you away from that scene, rebase, yeah. reset, restart, off you went to Cardiff. I went to Cardiff. Um, I would have been 17 okay. and it got worse. My brother was, um, he was working. He was, so he would have been 24. Um you know, the drinking yeah. continued. Then I found some clubs in Cardiff and then was there for about a year and then it all fell apart. Um, I was working the fishmongers down there and, you know, borrowing money, um, you know, manipulating mm -hmm. um, just to get what I wanted. It was a lifestyle that was kind of out of control really quickly. Um, you know, I was 17 years of age and I was, I was taking, you know, a lot of ecstasy alcohol cannabis um amphetamines so yeah it that went on for about um till i was about 24 okay i i went back to birmingham then i i got a chef's job and i, so I you were still holding down work and I jobs was yeah yeah I was hold, yeah yeah um i managed to kind of hold uh jobs down up until I was about 24, 25. So I had this, like, you know, I'd go somewhere, I'd work there, and then, you know, it, I'd, I'd end up getting into trouble or getting the sack, and then I'd go to another job. I'd literally bounce from job to job. Spiraling around and around job. and around on a roundabout, as it were. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was, nothing was ever my fault. I was just about to say, was nothing, there any point nothing. in this story so far where you thought, Steve, you know, you're being an idiot. Go on, sort it out. No. Just felt like normal no. life. No, I, you know, it it, it became a habit. Mm. I mean, uh, the alcohol, yeah, it was starting to take, you know, I needed more. Um, I was building up a tolerance to it, um, but I couldn't see it. My answer to it was more. Mm. You know, the digger, the, the bigger the hole that I was um, digging, you know, the deeper I'd go. Um, you know, mum and dad, I, you know, they were absolutely at their wits end with me. They did not know what to do. Um, by this time, I'd been in trouble with the police. Um, but it's remarkable to think they were still, I mean, you know, still there supporting you, even seven, eight years on. Yeah, yeah, well... Yeah, as I said, they, you know, they were at their wits end. There were times when they actually said to me that they, they just wanted to die. Wow. You know, I moved to, um, I moved down to Burnham-on-Sea with my parents. Um, I ended up getting a job in Glasgow. I'd met a girl in Amsterdam at the Euro 2000s. I'd gone out to Amsterdam and I moved up to Glasgow. Um, by this point, I was drinking, you know, hmm. anything from six to 12 pints a day, partying on the weekend. And it was every night in the pub. I'd finish work. I'd wake up shaking in the morning. Um, I'd go to work. I'd function for the day and then straight to the pub after work right. and then you know payday would come that would be gone you'd be subbing so you're and just borrowing. holding it together effectively yeah overdrafts you know um and one night i went to the pub and i saw two guys on a street corner and i knew what they were doing they were selling heroin i went up to them and i bought two bags i went home 
And at this point, you'd, you know, you'd done hard drugs, you'd done, you know, class A drugs, but you'd never done heroin. I think I'd tried it some years previous, but it was just a flippant moment with somebody. And um, I knew what they were selling. I seen him on the corner Mm. and I went and bought two bags of heroin. I was absolutely, you know, blind drunk, staggered home, bought some tin foil. I got home and, and... I'd, I'd smoked a bag of heroin on the foil. I rolled up a tube, put the heroin onto the foil and then chased the dragon, they call it. And I woke up in the morning, um, horrendous hangover, like every morning. And I looked and the foil was there and a bag of heroin. So I opened the bag of heroin in the morning, put it onto the foil. I was feeling horrendous. I smoked it within about 30 seconds. Boom, the hangover had gone. Right. So then very quickly, I'd say after about two weeks of using heroin every day before work, I needed it every day. I did. um, So it was in Glasgow. I was living at Glasgow Green, working in a seafood restaurant uh, and trying to manage like, you know, this this heroin habit yeah. on top of work at this point it must have unraveled extremely quickly didn't it well what yeah yeah i had a two-week holiday booked in the uk so i used to fly up from bristol to uh sorry i had a, a holiday book back down south so i'd fly up up and from glasgow to to um to bristol and bristol mm. therefore uh, so I knew I was having two weeks and like at this time I had a habit. So I, I went and bought, I can't remember, about an eighth, which I don't know, a couple of hundred quids worth. And I ripped the sole of my shoe. Yeah. So I knew I was coming back and I stuffed the heroin in there and super glued it back up and then flew back down from Glasgow to Bristol with, with, with the heroin. My brother Rob picked me up from the airport and he looked at me he just looked at me and like he just shook his head um and i was down for two weeks over the next probably 24 36 hours i smoked all that heroin and um we're at my brother's in cardiff and all the family were there and we were meant to be going out for dinner on the saturday i couldn't get off the sofa it was like that was my first kind of really going into withdrawal um i think by the sunday morning i took myself off to a and e and the doctor took pity on me and gave me some diazepam um i told my brother what 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 Mm. i was doing my other brother mike um and then he told my mum and dad i went back to glasgow and i think within a week i lost my job and then mum and dad said that I could go back to theirs, whether, you know, if I'd go into rehab, obviously there'd been years of substance mm. abuse. I'd only just picked up the heroin. Um, so I went back and after about a year, I went into into treatment. But during that year period, I was running up massive credit card um, debts you know, lying, stealing, cheating, manipulating, you know, it was just, it was becoming a different level now. You know, I got introduced to crack cocaine as well. So, and I really got into that in a big way. Um, Went into treatment in 2003. It was, it was a year program. Um, I wasn't ready. You know, I ticked the boxes with mum and dad to, you know, to go to rehab and then, I left after six months that that same day I used, I went straight to Bristol and I used, um, I think I picked up heroin and crack cocaine in 2001. Um, I finally cleaned up in 2014, but out of that, out of those 13, 14 years, I spent three years on the streets, um, three years in prison and four years in rehab. So I went to rehab probably about 20 times, yeah. So what What finally made you decide, I need to do something? Because, you know, that in and out of rehab, obviously not really committing to it, going through the motions of it. 
Um, well, the rehabs that I'd gone into, um, they weren't 12 step. So one, the second one that I went into was a thera therapeutic community. It was Christian led. So it, you had to go to church. You did a raw detox when you went in there. You couldn't smoke. You couldn't swear. Uh, you did garden jobs and furniture restoration. So it was this point. Wow. It was this point. They put me in a furniture shed and they had a um, they used to play Christian music and it was great, <laughs> man. You know, the guys that were there, um, you know, we were all in there. We had a good bonding. Um, so we, they put us in the shed with this music on and we, we got taught how to restore antique furniture. And it was great. So even though the rehabs piece didn't work, something there started to resonate with you it did um from that point i think the seed was sown um i went into that center so i'd do six months in there a bit longer i'd put a bit of weight on i'd get my family back and i think right okay i can go out there now i can get a flat i can get a job i'll be all right mm. as soon as you got out i thought i could have a drink i could dabble in this then I'll be straight back to where I was. And then everything just escalated and from there yeah, every single you know, time. And, the, and over the over the 10 years that I went in and out there, the consequences, they got stronger. Mm. You know, um, I... There's so much to tell, but I'll try and stick to um, like the key points. Um, you know, I was living on the streets in Bristol I went into the uh, into the Christian rehab. I ended up stealing from them and um, exiting. Then I, mum and dad wouldn't have me back. Um, I, then I ended up living on the streets of Bristol. I was selling the big issue. At this point, I started injecting. Um, yeah, it was. Then I got into the Salvation Army in Bristol, and there was probably about ninety residents in there. And guys were die dying on a daily basis, overdosing. Bristol was absolutely insane. It was like the playground of the drug world, mm -hmm. honestly. Every street corner, you know, it was, you know, I in Bristol, I saw people, you know, who've been in prison for life, people that have died, people that have been murdered. And, you know, that was happening. Um, it was... All around you. Yeah, yeah. Um you know, but I, it's what we were talking about earlier. I never thought that it'd be me. No. You know, it, people were dying around me and like, you know, I'd just take more. Just, just do take more. more. Take more. Do take more. more. Be more. And it, you know, it was escalating far out of control. Um, then I moved down to Torquay. Um, I met a girl and then moved down. And at this point, they'd put me on the maximum dose of methadone. I was 120 mil of methadone. And I was taking diazepam prescribed on top. Um, but then I learned that I could, I could mix diazepam with methadone. And it would have a totally different, better effect than, than taking heroin. So I, um, I got in such a mess down there. I've, you know, it really, 2012 was probably the worst year of my life. I went in and out of prison four times, um, found out I had hepatitis C, um, which I was treated for with interferon. I cleared that, thankfully. Um, got in a whole heap of trouble. Um, it was this point when things were getting really bad. You know, I, I, mm. the amount of drugs that I was taking was absolutely stupid. Mum and dad, had, they were living down there as well. They had an apartment. They found me unconscious outside their front door. I've no idea how I got there. I think being in prison four times that year probably saved me, to be honest. I, I've lost days. I've lost weeks where I just cannot remember anything. Um, yeah, it was... And therefore, what was that moment, 2014, you talk about the 12-step process. Yeah. But, you know, can you remember the day that you went into rehab? I can. And what was different this time? Well, 
I got I got into trouble again. You know, I got caught with counterfeit money, Class A drugs in 2014, and it was suggested that I go to treatment. And it was a 12-step rehab. Um, that probably wasn't the attraction. The probably the attraction was to try and get a swerve from another custodial another, sentence, another prison <laughs> sentence. <laughs> but like. <laughs> You know, I can just say that what saved me, I think, was my ability to keep trying. I yeah. failed over 20 times. Um, you know, at this point, I was at a place where I didn't want to live and I didn't want to die. I was too, I was too scared. I, I didn't want to live and I was too scared to die. Mm. You know, it was a real no man's land. And I tried that many times to, to stop, but I failed every time. You know, it was, mum and dad would say, like, they saw some good in me, you know, and um, I kept trying and I went into, I remember the day well, I remember it really well. I got a photo on my phone the day before, um, I was staying with a friend and I woke up, it was on a Monday morning, it was pouring down with rain, I had two dirty black bags of clothes. I had no fixed abode. Um, I got on the bus and traveled from one side of Birmingham to the other, just looking out the window and it was pouring down with rain. And I, I've had enough. Um, didn't know what was going to be different this time. Didn't quite know what I was walking into. Um, walked into the rehab and one of the guys that I was in treatment with in the Christian community 10 years previous was in there. So that was like a bit nice and you know, flipping police turned up for me every day every single day and like you know wanted to check i was there and you know they're you doing your yeah, committed and doing yeah, your thing and yeah, all of those I, th I think i'd racked up about 62 criminal convictions by this time um so what i'm struggling to see is you know how within seven years of that uh, actually nine, nine years, years in november that. yeah so nine years from that point on you end up here succeeding in the way you are with a completely different outlook on life because that takes for all of the weakness of character if you don't mind me saying that yeah. through the addiction yeah that strength of character yeah to go on that journey and come out the other side and be who you are today that's remarkable steve thank you um well, I went into the treatment center and it was 12 step. Yeah. So I was challenged. I had to look at myself. I had to, I had to get honest. That was one of the first things I had to do. And I had to look at what I'd, what I'd done. Um, and it was tough. It was really tough. I got challenged and my vape broke and I didn't have anything to smoke and I was detoxing and I nearly left. Duncan was there and we still talk about this now. There were two houses in Small Heath in Birmingham. We, we had to sometimes go to groups in the different houses. And one day I got challenged by the whole rehab, honestly. Like, you know, you're being a nose and, you, you know, yeah. I was struggling. It was like, it was a really bad detox, really bad. And um, my vape had broken and I didn't have anything to smoke. I was picking up cigarette ends off the floor you know, that the other guys, because they wouldn't give me any tobacco in there, the rehab. Um, and I got challenged in the group. And I, I, I said to Duncan, I'd, we walked back over, to, over the road and I saw the bus going at the top of the road. And I thought, if I get kicked out of here, if I leave here, that's it. I'm done. Crimes. So I knew, I knew I had to do it. And I pushed myself. I didn't sleep for about a month. My mum had fallen before I'd gone in, broken her, um, broken her hip. So, and then, you know, I just knuckled down and I pressed on. After about six weeks, they made me house leader. Started going out to meetings, you know. I got over my detox, started to put a bit of weight on. I was responsible for the guys in one house. So, um, and then I did six months in treatment. Then I went to the second stage. We had to do an NA meeting, Narcotics Anonymous, every every day. 
I think mm -hmm. for about three months. <clears throat> so yeah, went to the meetings and I learned the basics. Like I knew what I could do and what I couldn't do. I know what I'd done. You know, I knew that I couldn't use drugs in any shape or form. And Duncan said to me, what are we going to do? So this is the guy that I'd met 10 years before. And I said, let's do the furniture. Because that's what I wanted to do. And then our friend, Jo McKinnon, bless her. She was um, a CEO of the um, something called, oh, what's it called? So she was CEO of Welcome Change, and but she also also used to manage and oversee the uh, prescribing drug agency for the south okay. of Birmingham, Sias. Yeah, Solio Integrated Addiction Services. Right. She's not with us anymore. She passed away uh, back four or five years ago, cancer. She mentored us in the start and gave us some money, and we started the social enterprise called Trans Furniture. So we worked with addicts in early recovery. I mean, we were in early recovery. You were still recovering yourselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just like about a year we started it. And funding was a problem. Um, Duncan ended up relapsing. So, yeah, we did that for about 18 months. Right. So, yeah, it was... It and you were was, doing it as an event, adventure to keep yourselves occupied rather than as a business i threw myself straight into it straight away okay doing like five six days a week <laughs> yeah, I was extreme. It's that personality kicking Absolutely. in again so you know before it was like looking at, before it was raising money for drugs buying drugs and using drugs yeah. now it was looking for furniture restoring the furniture and selling the furniture so, so it's always a business venture from day one transferable skills yeah i've turned like a negative behavior into a positive behavior Absolutely. so yeah, it was, you know, flipping tired. I was just, you know, I don't think I'd had that much sobriety in, in 22 years. Mm -hmm. So my body was pretty, you know, I'd, I'd, when I was homeless in Bristol, I, I, I forgot what shoe size I was. I thought I was a size eight. I was walking around for three years in size eights when I was a size nine. My feet were buckled. Honestly, I was struggling to walk. Um but this, you know, the relationships were getting better with my family. Yeah. Mum and dad were coming around. My one brother, Mike, um, said, you know, you need to give us a couple of years. We need to really see. Yeah, we need to really see know, that I'd, you believe I'd, you've changed. I'd um, missed his wedding and all sorts. And yeah, not been a very good brother. Yeah. My other brother, Rob, um, you know, great guy. Um, he was always supportive always always supportive and um my my brother rob was a, a photographer so he approached me yeah, probably about a year and a half after i was clean and said look i want to do this photography project with you um i want to do a piece for the guardian or the times um and we spoke and yeah it kind of never happened at the end of uh, well, 15, 2016, my sister-in-law found out she had cancer. So that was Rob's wife. Right. Um, I, I saw my brother at the Christmas and he was in such a mess. It was, I couldn't get close to him, you know, and I was quite kind of scared. Um, I don't know, I was a, coming up to like two years clean. I was still... Kind of quite, I, I found it really difficult with people sometimes as well. I really kind of like fearful and stuff. I had to push myself a lot, you know, where I'd, I'd kind of suppressed everything for so long. I'd, you know, I was. Well, you, surely you, you, know, you, you feel emotion again that you've just yeah. blunted completely for 20 odd years. Yeah, I mean, one thing they didn't tell me when I cleaned up that I was going to get my emotions back and stuff. You know? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with emotions. Um, yeah, and they didn't tell me how, you being know. Being human. Like, like, you know, I was learning to live again. Um, so, yeah, Paul Luce, she um, had cancer. They had to do tests. It had gone to a lymph gland and then it spread. So my brother, he really didn't take it well. Um I saw him the week before Christmas, uh, 2016. Um, we went into the new year and 
it was a Saturday. I was actually in pool. So I met Lisa, my girlfriend, um, 2016, and I was coming down to visit. And as I said, Duncan was, he'd relapsed and taken money out of the business. Joe was ill as well, Joe, Joe McKinnon. And um, I'd come down on the weekends or during the week and I came down, it was the 14th of, of January. So I'd, just after Christmas and we came to Paul and my dad called and um, he was screaming down the phone. My brother had killed himself. Yeah. Probably the hardest thing that I'd I never heard, you know, it was, it was just, it was like I'd been hit by a bus. Mm. Um, I did the right thing, you know, I, I, I phoned my friends in Birmingham, I told them what had happened and I was with Lisa, I was, Lisa drinks, I said, you've got to get all the drink out of the house, get the drink on, yeah. you know, I phoned my mates, they were here the next day, sorry, not the next day, the day after, yeah. they came down from Birmingham, you ain't going nowhere. Um, so that's when you need those people around you that put their arm around you and support you, don't they? The day that he died, I went out and bought a bit of furniture and I restored it. I picked up a sander and I restored it in the garden at Lisa's. At this point, I knew um, I had to get out of Birmingham. Yeah. I moved down in the, in the, um, in the March. So we'd been doing trans furniture for about 18 months. So I'd rewind the tape a little bit. I'd met Jay Blades the year before yeah, and um, went over to his workshop in Wolverhampton. He was doing mid-century, you know, with like legs on, colored legs and wallpaper on it. So yeah, it was great. I met him, went over, showed him what he, I was doing and you know, he told me what he was doing. He said he was going on to TV. This was actually before he went on to TV. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we kept in contact and then I moved down and I, I didn't know anyone. I sat on the sofa in the March and I said to Lise, what am I going to do? I said, I, I literally don't know anyone. And I'd restored a couple of pieces, obviously, when my brother died. And I'd started seeing the mid-century online. Mm. Um, Jay had said to me the year before, what can you do that's different? And it didn't kind of come to me straight away. But that's the question he posed. That was in my head. It didn't go away. The thing with Jay, right, he can be really direct. And when you talk to him, he, he's just got something about him. And he said, what can you do that's different? And it really stuck in my head. And I saw the mid-century online. I started buying it, restoring it. I sold stuff on eBay. Then a marketplace and a dealer came down from, um, from Worthing in Sussex. And I'm still friends with him now. Um, he is, is, some of his stuff is amazing. And he said, there's a place in Bournemouth, Bournemouth Vintage Emporium. You should kind of go in there. I was like, yeah. I, I, I didn't really take it on board maybe for about another year. So just the whole living room was filled with furniture. <laughs> I'm getting the image that Lisa's quite a saint. <laughs> She'd just be like that, bap. You know, and she's supportive totally 100% because that's what I wanted to do. And that was my passion. And for me, I, I believe that furniture, you know, restoring furniture has saved me, honestly, yeah. because... It's given me everything in life. It's given me purpose, direction, you know, and some of my best friends have, have come through meeting people through, through doing furniture. But you're doing it now as a business. Yeah. And sometimes there's this thing, you know, do the things you love in life, but sometimes when you do them as a business, it can take away the joy. Has there been any moment where doing it, and to the scale you now are, you know, we're sat here and we restored Retro. It's an amazing shop. Thank you. you got you know, Jay and Conic, you know, literally through the archway that our, our listeners can probably see if they're watching it on YouTube. Yeah. You know, you've spread. Has it taken any of the joy from it? Well, yes and no. 
whereas it became from doing it in, in the garden, mm. then to going into Bournemouth Vintage Emporium and yeah. then stepping up then. Uh, and then the shop coming along about two years ago, just over two years now, which we got um, as an incentive. Um, it literally went from... low hundreds to probably over a thousand restored pieces in the last two years yeah. um and are you still restoring most of that yourself yeah. Or is there... yeah every piece that you see in here now i restore myself yeah wow so we saw i source it i restore it i sell it obviously we've got the collaboration with jay yeah and co now which came about in march yeah um so that's been open three months does it feel different because that is a you know when I, if I walk in as a customer into the restored retro side of the business and you're here, you know, and um, we talk about it, there's that love, care and attention you've given to it to bring that piece of furniture back to life. Yeah. You know, the J&Co furniture is amazing, but it's it's new furniture. There is a difference to it. You know, how do you feel? How do you remain so passionate about the J&Co stuff as you do? Well, it's reimagined. Yeah. It's reimagined, so some of the pieces are vintage. So yeah. some of the pieces are the same age as what you see in here. Um, some of it is new. We've yeah. got a range out now called Made by J yeah. uh, Blades. So you can pick your own fabric. And that's, yeah. That's, some beautiful chairs. <laughs> thank you. That's been quite popular. But for me, it, you know, I've left the life behind that I've, yeah. left behind and you know addiction obsessive compulsive behavior yeah. but now i've toned it into something that has given me a life away from from that and i almost take restoring a piece of furniture to my own journey mm. most of this doesn't definitely doesn't look like this when it comes in so i give it that love i give it that care and then you know restore it to the best of my ability and then to, to display it in the shop to give it its maximum potential. So, yeah, I think I still enjoy it. I still love it. I'm quite tired and we're due a holiday. We've not been away together for four years. We're away in a couple of weeks. So right. really looking forward to going to recharge. Um, this is what I want to do and this is kind of my this passion. Is this yeah. is your passion. That's what it comes down to, isn't it? But I suppose there was always that, you know, when I started the business, I know that I didn't get balance right. You know, I had a young daughter and I didn't spend as much time with my daughter, Alex, in that first year of her life because I just started the business. And yeah. you look back and you, you know, and you question yourself and you question your motivations. But there must, you know, how do you keep yourself in balance now? Do you know, I know you've talked about not having a holiday, but, you know, how do you, make sure that you are doing the right things and this doesn't just become because business can become an addictive position that can be as harmful as drugs yeah because you just keep running you keep going on the treadmill you forget about everything else that's important in life how do you keep yourself in check so that the business doesn't do that to you well as you said it's finding the balance mm -hmm. sometimes you know when it's busier it can be more full-on but when it's quieter taking a bit of time i've not got to be in there restoring i can be here catching up on something and yeah. taking the dog for a walk in the morning and you know and and getting out on the water which is great for my mental health um you know it's that takes me away from from what i'm doing i forget um you know about work for a little bit but having your own business it's it's like anything isn't it it's what you put in is what you get out um Oops. And I believe you can get it to a certain level, but you've got to maintain it. So I have to have a certain amount of pieces restored. I have to have stock lined up. Um, so when something does sell, mm. it's not a huge showroom. We can replace it as well pretty quickly, get it out delivered. So it's almost getting ahead of yourself, what I've learned in the last couple of years um, and managing stuff, you know, and... <laughs> Yeah, it's been hard. I'm not going to mm. lie. We we got the keys on the 18th of December and we went into a lockdown, um, the last lockdown. So we couldn't open for three and a half months. All the money that I'd saved myself, um, I'd saved all the money, put it into the shop. We got a deal with um, uh, Legal and General. 
So it was uh, rent and rate free for two years, but we still needed stock. We still needed to. Um, it's a great start, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Need a lot more well, than I mean, that. I, I had to take uh, the bank, my business account hadn't been open long enough and they wouldn't even give me a loan. <laughs> so I had to get a personal loan to buy some stock. And I just, for three and a half months, kept my head down in air and restored furniture. Um, and sold it where I could. I was allowed to go to work. It said I could go to work, and you know yeah. we could operate. Um, and, and and you know we did we did all right. And you know this wouldn't be here today. You know if people didn't support us. You know it's given me the opportunity now to go to J Blades and J and Co, which is great. We're a great team. Yeah. You know there's there's about ten of us, and um, we all get on really well. It's like a a family kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's been tough. And um, what do you think the other challenges you've overcome in business have been? You know, we, you talk about COVID, uh, which must have been hugely challenging. Again, you know, you, you take the keys, you get excited. And as with many of us, you know, business, you know, effectively just closed down, didn't it? Yeah. Like three years ago. But what other challenges have you faced since? Well, since the cost of living, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Brexit, I think Brexit's probably been a big factor in it the cost of living the war and the consequences of covid you know i always said that we'll we'll see the consequences 12 36 months down the line um and then now we've got the cost of living crisis it's it's the last six months we've been about a quarter uh down on our um on our takings from last year i suppose your discretionary spend aren't you really so it's having to tighten the belt a little bit now. Yeah. Be careful, you know, what we buy. I've probably got 100 pieces in stock at the moment, which I've built up for nothing over those two years. Yeah. Um, as I said, we sold over a 1,000 restored pieces. And, um, you know, it's important that I take some rest, but, um, yeah. Yeah, make sure you do recharge. And, you know... Clearly not to the extent that you were, but, you know, there is a thing that many business owners do sort of self-sabotage, you know, they do themselves harm in some way, shape or form, particularly, especially when they're under pressure. When the journey that you've been on, is there any advice that you'd give to somebody? I get days still, you know, although I've left that life behind, you know, I still have daily challenges of, of my past, but also challenges now of like, you know, I think, yeah, I don't want to do this and I'm tired. You know, tiredness is the number one for me, but then I have to kind of sit myself down and look. I sit on my bench in the shop, you know, mainly in the morning before we open and I look and I, and, I, and then I also think back to kind of what I have been through and I, I dust my shoulders off, you know, it's... You know, don't give up. You know, no matter how hard life got for me, um, I didn't give up, you know. And um, as I said, what saved me was my ability to keep trying. But also in business now, you've just got to keep going. You've got to keep going. Um, Unless your business is massively financially um, failing, then you obviously got to look at it. But you know, as I, as well, you know, what you put in is what you get out. Um, yeah, just keep going, no matter what. And this is going to be a slightly crass question, probably, but because there's probably an obvious answer, that's why I say that. But when you look back on your life, what would you have done differently? I wouldn't have taken drugs. Simple as that. Yeah. Wish I'd never have taken that first one, you know. It opened up a whole world of pain and suffering. Um, you know, I put my family through hell. More so, I put myself through hell. I don't think anyone can hurt me in this life as much as I could. I, I hurt myself, you know. And um, But then I, I, on the other side of the coin, I look back and the person that I've come today, become today, mm-hmm. is through that experience of life. Um, so, you know, I can't change that, but if I could change it, I definitely wouldn't take drugs. Um, you know, how I, I didn't end up dying is, you know, 
life is a journey, isn't it? And it's adversity that sometimes makes us. Most people's stories aren't quite as extreme as yours, Steve. <laughs> but it is some of those challenges and those adversities. And sometimes it's only when you've gone on that journey and you look back, you realize who you are and what you are and what you've become. And yeah. you must be proud of that, Steve. Um, I've lost so many mates. I've, I'm, you know, in the last nine years, I've lost about 30 mates. Um, people that I was in treatment with. Um, a friend of mine, Sophie, got murdered by her husband about nine years ago. Um, you know, and we can only learn from that now. You know, I know that I can't use drugs in any form. You know, I've I've had a a, a gift. Is that obsession lifted? Um, only I can take that away. You know, through making the wrong choices, I made too many wrong choices, and you know, life life's a gift. Mm. I feel when you get one shot at it, and um, I hope that my experiences can help others. You know, I'm doing stuff with the big issue, um, you know, with Lord Bird, the founder. Um, me and Jay were in that a uh, few few months ago. So. And I was going to ask you about that because given your own journey, I know that one of the things that's really important to you now is giving back, isn't it? It's yeah. it's about putting something back into the community, into society. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what do you do and how important is it to you what I was taught about nine years ago is a big <laughs> thing of giving back is not doing what I did before that's the first thing you know and um, I'll help anyone that comes to me and ask me you know I've, I've signposted dozens of people um, into treatment I've had people phone the shop up in tears you know their family member is um got a drug problem or a drink problem I've had people at the front door there crying saying that your journey is amazing I lost my son I had somebody come in the other week whose son had come out of rehab and then committed suicide and she broke down in the shop um she and they just their faces light up so I don't see it as a massive thing man I really don't I, I try to stay humble with it um you know, I'm lucky, um, but also I'm very grateful to everyone that supported me over, you know, I, I couldn't do this on my own. You know, I had to put my hands up, you know, I'm done, you know, and I, I and people help me. So it, giving back is really important. Um, unfortunately, you can't help everyone. You know, it, it's not everyone wants to get well. Um my family as well were a massive factor you know my poor mum and dad like and my other brother mike you know his twin brother you know dead and mm. the damage that i did thankfully you know it's it doesn't get spoken about anymore mum and dad came to the j and co opening and mum was saying to people i just can't believe it i just can't <laughs> believe it and um it's amazing. They've been a big part of your story, haven't they? I mean, throughout this conversation, Steve, you know, your reflection on, you know, the family and your mum, dad and yeah. their support. Yeah. You know. And I have to protect them as well, you know, and, you know, opening up old wounds when, you know, their, they, their hearts were broken when my, when my brother died and my brother Rob used to go absolutely ballistic at me for what I was doing to my mum and dad. So I kind of copped one with him. <laughs> yeah. you know taking his life but you know what i miss him so much yeah. um all he wanted it was for me to get well and i think deep down he felt the same as me he masked his problems with with work i masked mine with drugs but you know he never told me that but like i know that if he would have hung on it would have been all right he would have been all right if he would have just held, held in there um but like when they died, I said like to my friends, I, you know, I hold this in their memory. They saw me clean before I died. You know, I was able to step up and be there for my mum and dad. Yeah. And be the person that you would want to be. And, yeah. you know, we've sort of spoken before, Stephen. I know really as much as life is for you, it's about living day to day. Yeah. But where do you, what are your ambitions 
for the business? And where I would have, you like I have to dreams see? and um, desires? Um, I think in five years' time, well, that was the question, was it? Five yeah. years? I'd like to reduplicate Bournemouth Vintage Emporium, which is now closed. I'd like to have a retail space with about 15 different independent um, dealers, which is design-led. Okay. Like an emporium. Amazing. But yeah. some, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be possible. I love, you know, bringing people together. I don't want to be restoring furniture forever. Um, maybe on a certain scale, but I'd like to kind of get involved in something bigger. There's some stuff happen, happening with J&Co. We've got a, a furniture show, a J-Blade furniture show in London next year, which me and his CEO came up with the idea a year ago, and it's happening next year in Shoreditch. Brilliant. Yeah, and I introduced Jay to my brother, who is the G-Plan design director, okay. and coming out now is the J-Blade's G-Plan range. Wow. Yeah, so I've been a part of that as well. Um, so there's always something going on behind the scenes, but I guess it's just kind of networking and putting it out there. I'd, I'd like to try and get into the London market a little bit more because okay. this stuff I think would fetch more money yeah. and be very popular. I think this, this furniture would stand out from what is available in London for the, for the quality of the restoration. Um, so that could kind of be an avenue we we've held off for, uh, from selling online just I can't manage running a website with with doing the the uh, the uploads of, of new yeah. stuff and dealing with all the inquiries and couriers and wrapping it. It's a full-time job. So we've held back from that. I mean, you know, I, I tend to sometimes go the other way to what other people are doing. I'm a little bit kind of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is how you've lived your life, Steve. So why do business yeah, any different way? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get it wrong sometimes. Yeah. But do you know what? I can actually put my hands up now and yeah. apologise. Sometimes I put my foot in it, yeah. you know, and I'm always trying to better myself in my restoration. You know, some people... I struggle with people more than I do with drink or drugs. Yeah. Um, in life and certain people's behavior so I have to be really really careful who I put myself around yeah. you know and the toxic people who you can you trust know, absolutely but that's a life that's a lesson for us all isn't it I've learned that in the last couple of years and you know only the I, people that are around me want the best for me and I want the best for them and I don't look at people and get envy or jealous. Um, you know, we're all on our journey. You know, if someone's doing better, then fair play to them, man. Yeah. It's, you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, I'm grateful to be here. But all, as I said, like, I, I, and I've put myself through therapy now. I still put myself through therapy where I go and offload. I talk with somebody that understands me and it works. And um, I can, I've got friends that I can call up at any moment, you know, if if there was a problem. And um, and that's a great lesson for us all, isn't it? Because in business, you know, in life, we need to surround ourselves with the right people. Yeah. We need to be able to put our hand up when asked for help. Yeah. When we need it. Um, and we need, you know, coaches, mentors. Absolutely. You know, I talk about um, a lady called Becky Holston, who's a life yeah. coach. And I wouldn't be who I was today and, and got rid of some of my you know, demons and chips on the shoulder that I was carrying yeah. with me if I hadn't spent time yeah. with her. And, you know, it's, but it's, a, it is, you know, it is a daily journey, isn't it? And we need to be able to put our hands up, ask for support, as I say, but be there for others as well. That's, that's important. What I learned as well nine year, years ago is I can't, we can, you know, and I can't, we can. I can't, we that. can. What a great mantra. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I uh, in the last couple of months, I've I've spoken with my therapist, and um, some of those problems that I talked about from being a kid, I, I do suspect of being ADHD. Mm -hmm. So after the holiday, I'm going to take myself off to the doctors and 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 talk about it. You know, I'm, I've no shame in it, mm -hmm. no shame in it at all, and I'm no shame in in telling people who I am. Or what I've done, obviously, got to tone it down sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to scare people too much, but like you know, it it, it was. It's been an incredible journey looking back now. Um, I've only realised like how much danger I was actually in. 
like after I've stepped out of it. Um, but you're here. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's, you know, I've become the son that I should have been um, and the brother, you know, and um, it's it's great, you know, to be trusted again. I didn't trust myself. You could not trust me with £10. No. You, honestly, and you know, I couldn't trust myself and, you know, I'm responsible for thousands of pounds now. You know, I'm, I've been made a, a beneficiary on mum and dad's will. I have the keys to their house, their apartment in Birmingham. I go there at Christmas. There's wallets lying around, iPads, you know, and it's funny today. <laughs> it's going to make you laugh. This, you know, I went out into the car park earlier and a fella pulled up. He got out of his car, right, in his hand, in broad daylight, he had a flipping wedge of £20 notes like that. <laughs> I was like, all around the corner, and my head's like being what it was. <laughs> it was just, you know, it doesn't go away. It no. doesn't go away. Um, it's, it's about making the right decisions, and like, you know, I'm not that person anymore. You know, I can get myself into situations where I can I can get angry. You know, I don't react with that. You know, I've 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 been challenged over the last couple of years, and um, I have to disengage from that stuff because it's not healthy for me. No, it's really really not healthy. Um, but, but that comes back to knowing yourself, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And th this is all stuff I didn't know. Mm. I did not know, you know, it's all very well throwing yourself into your work, but, you know, you, it comes out sideways otherwise. If you don't deal with stuff, you know, it, it, it can really come out sideways and it hurts you. It's all, For me, it's almost like a form of self-harm. If I hold something in too much and I don't deal with it, it, it it's like inner turmoil of, of pain, you know, and um, I can pick up a piece of furniture Right, as long as I've answered my emails and nobody's on my case, and like that's my best thinking time in there. That is my rehab now on a daily. You know, you work on a piece of furniture, and I guarantee you, on every piece, a problem will come up. But then over the years, you you overcome those problems, and then something bigger comes along, and you deal with that. So it's like you're fixing that, and then before you know it, you're doing it without even thinking it. Um, you know, and it's it's been real big character building for me. I used to throw the towel in as a kid. I just, I just, I at the you know at the too first difficult. Chance, give up, yeah. Give up, give up, give up. But I persevere now, and it mold. It's got something quite magical about it. It molds you, you know. And um, yeah, it's I've amazed myself. Yeah. So to wrap up the conversation, I always end our podcast. And I'm fascinated to hear how you're going to respond to this with this this final question, which is right now, where you are in life, what's your personal definition of success? Success is trying, not giving up. But even if you fell, it's not failing. You've tried. You know, you've got to pick yourself up, you know, and keep going until you find that place, you know. I think success, you know, life tells you, doesn't it, that you, you know, you have to have this and you have to have that. And um, these kids now on their phones, you know, and seeing all these celebrities with X, Y, and Z. But, you know, success, I mean, looking at Jay, you know, his journey over the last eight years to watch him go from his workshop in Wolverhampton without a toilet, no heating um, on a uh, October Saturday morning. when he picked me up in his, his, um, his beating up Mercedes four by four, you know, to watch him go <laughs> on his journey yeah. to watch him go. It's been a joy. So that's to me, you know, great success. But for me, you know, our journeys are different. Mm. You know, we've both been successful in, in other ways. So it, I don't compare myself really to anyone. Don't ever do that. No, no. So uh, successful, yeah. So just to wrap up then, one last reflection from you, Steve. I think when something saved your life, what do you give it? Yeah. yeah, this has given me everything, yeah. And if our listeners and those that are watching on 
YouTube have seen some of this wonderful furniture. If they want to know more about you or want to come into the shop, want to find out more, where can they go? Yeah, social media, uh, Facebook, we are restored, at Restored Retro, Instagram, Restored underscore Retro. And you can email me at steve at restoredretro.co.uk. Brilliant. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My hope with every episode is that you've learned something new or heard something that challenged your way of thinking and further motivated you on your path towards becoming a more knowledgeable, informed and inspired individual and business leader. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us by rating, reviewing and subscribing. We really value your feedback and would love to have you along for future episodes. And please don't forget to learn more about Evolve by going to evolvedmembers.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week.